And Father, we just pray one more time as we open your word that you would truly reveal who you are to us. And Father, as, as Lord, we have come before you this night, I just pray, Lord, that truly it would be the expression of our heart to worship you, to be taught by you, and then, Father, to go and to reflect you to others in this world. And so, Lord, just bless our time in your word. One more time, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor? Greetings. Hi, Linda. I hear you. I couldn't see you, and I see you. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 34. We're going to be looking at three chapters tonight, so we'll be doing a lot of moving. But before we get started, as always, Thursday night, we have an email prayer request prayer chain at our church. We gather them from the previous week together, and we pray for them one last time on Thursday night. Again, if you want to be part of the people who pray, or if you want something prayed for, just email Teresa. That's Mrs. Turin at gmail.com. The first one was from Stephanie Gonzalez for Tania and her husband Gustavo. She has a high-risk pregnancy with triplets and just asked for prayer for her. Lizette Free asked for prayer for her uncle Humberto Morales. He has stage four lung cancer. Seems like every week we're praying for somebody new with lung or some sort of cancer. Uh, Donna asked for prayer for a friend, Nancy. She had surgery, uh, was it yesterday? I believe it was yesterday. Yeah, yesterday, to remove a cancer-infected kidney. And part of our prayer was to pray that the cancer was confined to the one kidney that was removed. And so far, it's looking pretty good. Um, Julie asked for prayer for her son, Coda. I talked to her today. Uh, he has a severe intestinal bacterial infection. And just keep him in prayer because it's like every week it, it's something else and it's really wearing on this young man. So we need to lift him up in prayer. Sylvia Foy asked for prayer. Sylvia and Billy attended our church a few years ago. They, they live out in um, San Dimas, a little bit further than that. I can't recall where, but nonetheless. And so they're going to church there now. But her daughter Marina... Um, has an ulcer, and they've discovered some polyps in her digestive system. I don't remember if it's in her intestine or in her stomach, and also a tumor. Um, they were going to do can uh, surgery this morning, but they have postponed it now for, I believe, about 10 days. Anyway, keep her up in prayer in that. Um, they don't know if it's cancerous or not or what's up with that, but just lift her up in prayer. She's a mother of, I don't remember if it's three or four, but um, just, just keep her in prayer. Uh, Johanna Bagma, I got a call this morning from her daughter, Karina. Um, Johanna and Martin attended our church for quite a few years. He was a dairy farmer out here in the preserve and um, just a neat guy. The guy was in, when he was here, he was in his late 80s, and he would always walk by and shake my hand, and he would drive me to my knees. The guy had the strongest hands in the world and tell me about the latest calf he had to pull out of a cow or something like that. He was just still very active. Anyway, he went to be with the Lord last night. And so uh, Johanna called me and I talked to her. They were married 50-some years. And so just keep Johanna and the family up in prayer. Um, Steve Potter's funeral is going to be this Saturday at 1.30. If you're interested in attending, you can contact my wife. She has the address of where it's going to be. Keep me in prayer. I'll be offici officiating it. Uh, Henry Cortez, once again, has asked for prayer. Same prayer, but we need to continue to pray diligently for his prosthetic. Uh, he asked specifically that we would pray for the funding for it. Uh, it's the VA, and things have been dragging along. I remember it's been about six months ago. He was excited, thinking he was going to get it. And, and again, it's just been dragging on and on and on. So we need to lift that up in prayer as well. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you, and we just know that you are the God who hears our prayer. You're the God who answers prayer. And so, Father, I just lift up each request that we have here tonight. And, God, just pray that you would do a work in the lives that are represented here. Father, I lift up Tania and her husband in this high-risk pregnancy as she's pregnant with triplets. 
I pray that you would preserve the lives of those babies, that you would keep them safe until the day of their birth. I pray, Father, as you know them, you know who they are, that God, you would just do a work within their little bodies. And I pray for Tania, her her health and her safety, and just pray for Gustavo and his ministry to his family, Lord, that you would just do a great work there. I pray for Lizette's uncle, um, Humberto, who's got stage four lung cancer. I don't know where he is at with you, but I do pray for a relationship with you. Pray that you would reveal yourself to him, and Father, he would find his peace in you. Lord, I lift up Nancy, and thank you that the surgery went well with the kidney removal. I pray that the cancer was confined to that. I know they have some decisions to make as far as chemo and whatnot, but I just pray for Nancy, Lord, that she would heal, and Lord, that you would restore her health to her quickly, sooner rather than later. Father, I pray for Coda. We've been praying for him for quite a lot, and it seems like every week it's something different. And, Lord, he's just such a young man. I I think he's around 12, somewhere in there, 10. And just pray, Father, that you would do a work of healing in his life, just the severity of everything he's been dealing with. I can see how hard it is on Julie, and I can imagine how hard it must be on him. And so, Father, just bless him. Just uh, do a work in his body that these things are dealt with and that you would restore him back to full health as well. Lord, I lift up Marina to you. I've known her since she was probably about six or seven years old. And just pray, Father, for her health, that you would strengthen her. Pray, Father, that if this surgery is necessary, she would be able to have it in a timely manner. I pray that there is no cancer. And just pray, Father, that you would give the doctors wisdom and direction. And, Lord, we would see a healing come come about, however it is that you decide to work your healings. And so, Father, I lift her up to you and just pray, Father, that you would bless her. Lord, I lift up Johanna during this difficult time and just pray that you would be her peace and comfort as she's lost her husband of so many years. And so, God, just do a work in that family. I pray, Father, that you would be glorified through the services. And, Lord, just the memory of Martin and just the blessing that he was here and the times that he came and visited. I believe he was here about a year ago. And just pray again, Father, that your, your hands of grace would be upon them during this difficult time. I pray for the Potter family as Steve's services are this coming Saturday, Lord, that you would do a work of peace in them as well. And, Father, I thank you for the joy that they have and the knowledge of his salvation and his presence, Lord, in your kingdom. But just pray that you would just, just, just soothe the hurt. I pray for Lupia's wife, Father, that you would be her peace and comfort and that, God, you would do a great work that day. I pray for Henry, Lord, and his prosthetic. And just pray, Father, as they've been giving him this hope, but stringing him along. Pray, Father, that you would bring this to closure, that you would provide what is necessary. And, Father, we would see him be able to get this prosthetic, that he would be able to move forward, Lord, in you. So, Father, we just thank you for these prayer requests. We lift up the ones, Lord, that weren't brought to our attention and just pray that you would continue to do a work in the lives of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Jeremiah, in chapters 34 through 39, they all have to do with the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem. God has strived with his people. Zedekiah, he's on the throne, and now it's time for Jerusalem to, well, for judgment to come to Jerusalem, and through that judgment, the temple is going to be destroyed as well. Chapter 34 is a word to this king, King Zedekiah, as the downfall of this great city has started. It's the summer of 587 B.C. From there, as we go forward in chapters 35 and 36, the prophet is going to work backwards, and we're going to see how they arrived at this point. Now, in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, when it comes to a nation collectively, it says... Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And this is a reality best observed from the perspective of the Lord. Righteousness exalts a nation as as the earmark of that, as God looks down upon such a nation. And this is a nation that has worked towards righteousness in God, has dedicated their heart to living a life, being a nation that that is pleasing to the heart of the Lord, God exalts such a nation. He, he uses such a nation to, to exemplify who he is. It uses the nation for the purpose of evangelism and other people seeing the blessings that God works upon a nation. Our country at one point was an example of that. But it says, and there's that word, it's a pretty big word, but, but sin is a reproach to any people. 
a nation who exemplifies sinful behavior, who is contrary to God, it's going to be a reproach to the people. The people are going to suffer in such a nation. And so breaking down the next four chapters, really five chapters, chapter 34, as we'll move on in a little bit, and verses 8 through 22 is the time of the siege. Chapter 35 is the reign of King Jehoiakim. Remember, Jeremiah is going to be working backwards. And a message from the Rechabites. We'll learn tonight what a Rechabite is. Chapter 36, the refusal of King Jehoiakim as he refuses and tries to do away with the word of God. And then next week, chapters 37 through 38, Jeremiah's ministry during the siege. And then chapter 39, we'll see the capture of the city. And so first of all, as we enter into chapter 34, we have the announcement of the ruin of Jerusalem, verses 1 through 5. It says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all of his army, all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all of its cities, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire." And you shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. He shall speak with you face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you shall not die by the sword. You shall die in peace as in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who went before you, so they shall burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, says the Lord. All throughout history, when it comes to the judgment of God, we've been warned and God tells us that it's coming. God will always warn his people of impending judgment. For Zedekiah, he has been told, he has been warned, and now he's to the point that God is telling him through the prophet how it's going to go down. Yeah, he's going to see King Nebuchadnezzar, and it's going to be one of the last things that he sees. He's a man who brought his people and his kingdom to the point of destruction. When Babylon had broken through the wall, we've looked at this before, he snuck out the back door, if you will, had a secret passage. But he got caught on the plains of um, Jericho, the soldiers that caught him brought him back to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar killed his sons and his officials before his eyes, and then the last thing he saw was his eyes being put out. So I can imagine what horror that must be. But it's an aspect of the nature of God, justice, as we've seen so many times, and an aspect of justice, for God to be just, he gives the warning of what is about to come. Now, we see in our society and in the church age today, we see parallels here. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, as I've said so many times, because the Bible says it in John chapter 16. What does the Holy Spirit do? It warns the world. It, it, It convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Of sin, because the world is enmity with God. They're contrary to the Lord of righteousness so that they know that there is a God and they know that this God, well, sin, righteousness, and judgment is going to judge them for their sin. So as we go out there to share the gospel, you can rest assured that the world already knows because the Bible says they've been convicted of this. They already know that they're a sinner. Deep down inside, they know that they're a sinner. You're not bringing anything new to their ears. They know that there's a God. I don't care if they're a atheist or whatever they might be, they know of the existence of God because God has divinely convicted them of that. And they know that they're going to have to give an account of their sin to this holy God. And so those are realities that they know. And really the problem that they have with you and you're evangelizing them, you sharing the word of God with them, you keep bringing it to the forefront of their mind. They keep wanting to push it back. They keep wanting to suppress it, to ignore it. Maybe it'll go away, maybe it'll never come, or maybe I can just enjoy this life and I'll deal with it at the end. But you bring it before their face. And as you do, that's why we get the reaction that we get so many times. But this is why that those whom God judges will have absolutely no excuse. Romans chapter 3 verse 19 tells us that every mouth will be stopped. 
Man will stand before a holy God and he will not have any excuse whatsoever. In 2 Corinthians 5.11 it says, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It's in the context of judgment that a man woman, mankind, standing before God in an unsaved state will do so without an excuse and in absolute terror. And Paul says this is a motivational fact to those who have the Word of God and to share the Word of God because that's why we persuade men. That's why we present the gospel in a way, in a manner, that they're able to understand, they're able to digest, and to come to the point of making a decision. This concept of warning is constant throughout the Bible. It's why God sent his word from the cover to cover. It's why he sends his word, and today, well, back then, it's why he sent the prophet. Today, it's why he sends the witness, because, again, man in his sinful state will be judged. In Amos chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, it says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared... Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? As we have these truths, is what he is saying, we need to go forth and we need to share these truths. We need to warn people. We need to preach the gospel. It's not God's desire that anyone should suffer the effects of judgment, but once again, we'll see he does desire that man would hear, man would repent, and man would receive of what God has. Just think of it. Why do we call salvation, salvation? Because there's imminent danger. Mankind is in imminent danger. And the only reason that you need to be saved is because of that danger, because of that situation, because that train is coming down the tracks. So just as we can read to the end of the Bible and see God's details of judgment, So it was spelled out for the kings of Jeremiah's day as well, specifically for Zedekiah in these chapters. Jerusalem, they told them, it's going to fall to Babylon. Matter of fact, what did he say previously? He told them not even to withstand Nebuchadnezzar as he came in to invade the land, but nonetheless, they were depending upon a false hope. He told King Zedekiah that he will meet Nebuchadnezzar face to face. The idea behind that is, isn't on equal terms, but to receive judgment. And Zedekiah will be taken captive to Babylon, although he will die a natural death. We are told that he even later on would eat from the king's table. But back then, part of what was being said behind that, if you were a conquering king, you would take the king that you conquered. If you didn't kill him, you would take him as a prize. And maybe you've heard the term in the scriptures, and those kings ate the scraps from underneath the table of the king. The idea would be that they would be just as a dog or a pet. They, They were a trophy. They were a trophy to display this particular king's power and how inept those who stood against him truly were. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, we're told basically the same thing at the end of time. It says, at that time, I'm sorry, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. Mankind will bow either today or bow later. Either way, you will bow before the Lord. And so keep in mind, just as they were taking heed of the message of warning then, or at least they weren't, today we see the necessity of taking heed to the message that has been given. And matter of fact, we're even told to examine the signs, examine the signs of the time. So believer or unbeliever, God has told you what is going to happen, and he's told us to examine the signs. Why? Well, for the unbeliever, that he would be saved, that he would repent and get right with God. For the believer, that we would be encouraged and we would be reminded that God is in control, that all of these things are working out according to the timetable of of the Lord. Now, we have in Mark chapter 13 the parable of the fig tree. And, and, And this gives a warning to us today, here in this age, because it seems to be very applicable. Now, it could be in reference to another age, but we need to receive it as if it is ours, and it seems as if it is ours. 
It says in verse 28 of Mark chapter 13, it says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, a a, a fig tree is a picture of Israel. Israel has been restored. As a matter of fact, Israel is in full blossom after being non-existent for so many years. Verse 29, you also, when you see these things happen, know that it is near. Now, when it says it, I don't know that that's a great translation because it can also be translated, know that he is near. So when you see Israel restored, know that he, the second coming of Jesus Christ, is near. At the, it says here, at the doors. It's as if he's at the very doors of heaven ready to step off. As surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away to all these things that take place. He's not talking about the generation that he is talking to at that time. He's talking about the generation that is around when the fig tree once again blossoms. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And so he's given us this, this reality. Israel restored in 1948. A generation, generation could be, some say it's 100 years, some say it's 70 years, whatever it might be, the life expectancy of man at this time. We're pretty close to it. And so he goes on to say in verse 32, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So he's just giving the time frames, not given specific time. But again, this word, four times. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded uh, the doorkeeper to watch. Verse 35, Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to you all, watch. And so Israel has been reestablished. We need to be very watchful. Watchful? Well, watchful in the news and everything that is going on, but how much more so? We have a prophecy update that we do at the end of the year and kind of just update what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on prophecy-wise. We need to pay attention to these things. Now, our focus needs to be on evangelizing, living a Christian life, being that witness without a doubt, but we still need to be watchful of these things. Why? Because as we're watchful of these things, as we see the reality of these things, these things will be a motivation to us. So in the next three chapters, what we'll see is the justification for the ruin of Jerusalem. Here, God, through Jeremiah, gives us three reasons why the ruin of this society is coming. Keeping in mind, just as surely as it came to then, back then, it's going to come to this society at some point in history as well. So the first thing, the first reason for the ruin of that society is the hypocritical leaders. The Bible is very clear. The Lord knows those who are his, and he knows the intent of the heart of man. Look how this father once prayed for his son, 1 Chronicles 28, 9. As for you, my son Solomon, obviously this is King David praying for his son. He wanted his son to grasp this concept. Know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. He understands not just your thoughts, but the seed of your thoughts, the intent of your thoughts. And the only way to have thoughts, the intent of thoughts that are honorable before a holy God is for the inside to be clean. And so I have to be pure before the Lord, right relationship with God through and through. I I, I can't put on a facade. I can't put on an act. The Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. And so moving into verse 8, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them. So they're under siege, and this man is proclaiming liberty to them. Makes no sense. That every man should set free his male and female slave 
a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. Now when all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should set free his male and female slaves, that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and let them go. But afterwards they changed their minds and made the male and female slaves return whom they had set free and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. Therefore the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, let every man set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to him. And when he has served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. But your fathers did not obey me and inclined their ears. Then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight. Every man proclaimed liberty to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. Then you turned around and profaned my name, and every one of you brought back his male and female slaves, whom he had set at liberty at their pleasure, and brought them back into subjection to your male and female slaves, or to be your male and female slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and every one to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence, and the famine, and I will deliver you to trouble amongst all the kingdoms of the earth, and I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not <coughs> excuse me, profaned the word of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, I'll explain that in a minute, the princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be for a meal for the birds of heaven and the beasts of the earth. And I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes into the hands of their enemies, into the hands of those who seek their life, and into the hand of the king of Babylon's armies, which have gone back from you. Behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to this city, they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire, and I will make the cities of Judah desolation without inhabitant. So one of the ways that their hearts were revealed as being contrary to God is that they were taking Jewish people, God's people, and they were making them their own slaves. At some point, they realized the sin that they were in. And that's what I said I would explain to you when it says in verse 18, And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it. That was a common thing to make a, a deal, if you will, or a covenant between two people. We see it in Genesis chapter 15 as Abraham and our God is making a covenant with Abraham. You would take an animal and cut it in two, and as you would walk in between it, it was symbolic of let me be as this animal if I go back on my word. Well, what they were doing in that was, in this covenant that they made with the Lord, which was a good thing because he's talking about bringing Babylon back. That tells me that Babylon backed off for a period of time. Well, they made this covenant with the Lord. What they were doing was acknowledging what they have done as being sin and being dishonorable before God. And so they made this covenant with God, and apparently the Lord pulled Babylon back for a period of time. But they played the hypocrite. God knew their heart all along, and just waiting to reveal their heart, they went back on the word, and, you know, things probably got a lot harder. They got more difficult because they didn't have their slaves anymore. And they were more concerned with the things of the world than they were with the Lord. And also, you know how diligent you can be in prayer? and diligent you can be in the Word of God when things aren't going so well. And so you, you get into the Word, you get into prayer, and you're praying that God would deliver you. Then all of a sudden things get easier and so easy just to kind of back off. Well, again, that's more than likely what they were doing here. And so in the face of the anger of God, these princes get a temporary religious zeal. But the problem was it was temporary, and it was superficial solution and there was no deep inward renewal within their hearts. Now, if you say you love God and you don't love the brethren, the Bible tells us in 1 John that you're a liar, that it's impossible, that, that's an impossibility. 
And so do you see what they're doing here? They're making this feigned attempt at being right with God, and they didn't care about the brethren. They didn't care about their fellow Jews. And keep in mind, I mentioned it before, but these fellow Jews are just that. They're fellow Jews. They don't own them. They're God's people. It's one of the things that the Lord showed me with even my own family. My wife is God's daughter. My kids are God's children. And there's great responsibility in that. And they were abusing this responsibility. And so they made this covenant with God, but as all they did was they ended up making things worse because they acknowledged sin, but they continued on in their sin and they rejected God. And God said, since you rejected me, I'm bringing Babylon back even to your very doorstep. Now in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, it speaks of this concept, this concept of outwardly trying to get right with God or make a situation better or whatever it might be. It says, when an unclean spirit goes out of man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So it shall be with this wicked generation. The idea is an attempt at self-righteousness. And let's just say somebody has an issue. We'll just alcoholic. He's an alcoholic and he decides, I want to not be an alcoholic. I want to stop drinking. But he attempts to achieve this apart from God. And again, you can plug in just about anything, anything that we'd make a promise to do that we try to achieve according to our own strength. And so he goes about and clears out all of his liquor. He sweeps the house out. He sweeps it clean. But sooner or later, he falls back into his own ways because dog always returns to his vomit. Pig always returns to the slop. And as he does, he's ten times worse or seven times worse than he was before. <coughs> How many people have you known that? Uh, they, they seem to be doing better. Seem to be, wow, isn't it impressive how, how well Fred's doing over there? But then, hey, I heard about Fred. He went back to what he was before, and then it seems like he's even worse than he was before. Again, this is an attempt at righteousness apart from God. And they were making the attempt here in chapter 34, but it was all hypocrisy. It was all play-acting. They did release the slaves, but then they brought them back, but they made their judgment seven times worse than it was before. Here we'll see that the enslaver will one day become enslaved himself. Verse 20, I will give them into the hand of their enemies, into the hands of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of heaven and for the beast of the earth. Kind of a picture of what we see in Revelation chapter 19 when the Lord comes back. It's going to be a day of dining for the birds of the air with the corpse that litter the ground. And the idea here is, is that these people are no better off than, than the people of the world at the day of, uh, the day of the second coming of Christ. Secondly, after the hypocritical leaders, we see that judgment is coming because they are disobedient son. Here we have the Rechabites. The Rechabites, it's believed that they come from the Midianites. It's believed that they were descendants of Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses. Now, there was a group of them that stayed with Moses, and they traveled with the children of Israel throughout the wilderness. They entered into the promised land with the tribes of Israel, but they would obviously have no land themselves because they weren't part of any of the tribes of Israel. They are described as a people who do not drink wine. They do not build houses. They have no land. They do not sow seed nor plant nor have any vineyard, and all their days they were to dwell in tents. They were nomadic. But the thing about them is, is that they worshiped the God of Israel and that they were faithful to him. And so I'm going to read through chapter 35 here. And what you need to see is, is the illustration that the Lord is using from these well-known people of that time. And he's using it to show the disobedience of God's people of that time. How these people have been dedicated to what their father said, but the children of Israel have, been not, have not been dedicated to what their father said. The word which came, I'm in chapter 35, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim. Now remember, he's backing up a little bit to show how they arrived at the judgment that he's spoken of in chapter 34. The word which came to Jehoiakim from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, 
um, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites, speak to them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. And the idea here is a test. He's using this as an object lesson. Then I took Jehazaniah, the son of Jeremiah. This is not Jeremiah the prophet. The son of Habazaniah, his brothers, and all of his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdalia, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes above the chamber of Masaiah, the son of Shalom, the leader on the keeper of the door. Then I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine. But they said, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, you nor your sons, forever. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, or have any of these, but all the days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab. We have been faithful to what we have been told to do. Our father, and all that he charged us to drink no wine all of our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor do we have a vineyard, field, or seed, but we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came into the land that we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwell at Jerusalem. So they're basically saying, we have taken what our father has commanded us to do, you know, for whatever his reason in saying these things. And we know, again, they couldn't own land because they were not part of the 12 tribes of Israel. But his father apparently noticed the blessing for dwelling amongst God's people. But we have followed that meticulously, just simply because our father has said, the only thing that you charge you could bring against us was, well, that we are now dwelling in Jerusalem. They were a nomadic people, but that was because of the danger that was outside. And so again, what the Lord is doing here, he's using this as an object lesson, verse 12. Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction to obey my words, says the Lord? So again, he's using that contrast. They obeyed their father's words. How come you're not obeying your father in heaven's words? Verse 14, The words of Jonadab, the sons of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed. For to this day they drink none and obey their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, you did not obey me. I have also sent to you all of my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way, amend your doing, and do not go after other gods, small g gods, to serve them when you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers, but you have not inclined your ear nor obeyed me. Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, but this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, because you have not obeyed me, thus says the Lord God of, of the hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I have pronounced against them because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard. And the idea is they would not listen. And I have called to them, but they have not answered. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father, and kept all of his precepts, and have done according to all he commanded you, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. To stand before God is to be active in the service of the Lord. And so the point through all of this, obviously, is the contrast between the obedient and the disobedient. And really what we need to take to heart is the reality. If a child is not trained to honor his parents, he will not honor the God of his parents. And so we see the necessity for discipline. These, the Rechabites were disciplined people who respected and understood the authority that was in the family and they followed through from that and God honored them but the others who were disobedient and wicked in their ways they were dishonorable they saw how their father dishonored God 
and they themselves have dishonored God. We're told in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Our country is getting farther and farther away from that blessing. It's not so well with us and not so many are living long on this earth. Why? Because there is no honor of parents in our society. I shouldn't say there is none. That's not true. But we've seen how great damage has been done to the relationship between a child and its parent, and we've seen the effects that it has had upon our society. The third reason for the ruin of the society was a defiant king. And what you need to see is he was defiant in the face of the word of God. Chapter 36 now is going to back us up to 605 B.C., and the reign of Jehoiakim. We saw him a little bit earlier with the Rechabites. The main problem here is is his rebellious attitude towards the word of God. We're going to look at four things in this chapter. And the first thing we see is the written scroll, verses 1 through 4. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day that I spoke to you from the days of Josiah even to this day. So he's wanting to write a full account of the prophecies that God had given to Jeremiah. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities that I propose to bring upon them that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book in the instruction, at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. So the main job of a prophet was to speak the word of God that was spoken to him by the Lord. And so these words that he is writing in this book, these words are the word of God. Some of these words we have even contained in the book of Jeremiah. Baruch, we've seen him before, once before. This time we're seeing him in his true capacity. He is a scribe. This is his job. In society of that day, something that was written would carry more weight than something that was said. Something that is written, there's accountability, there's always accessibility to it, and there's a responsibility to it. I decided, God laid it upon my heart, and I started writing devotions and written quite a few devotions. And one of the things that I realize is, once you've written it down and it's out there, it's out there. And you've got to be careful what you say. You've got to really consider what is written and put out and print out there because there's a permanence to that. You have to make sure that this is truly of your heart, and you have to make sure that it's, it's truly correct. And so Jeremiah, well, God is telling him to go on record. Now, this is God's heart. This is the intent of the Lord. He wants the result of this scroll being written, verse 3, that it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities that I propose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. This is the essence of the gospel. God has given us the gospel. He's given us the gospel that mankind would read it and he would turn from his wicked ways and that he would be saved. And so again, the God who is working this way back then to a people who are facing imminent judgment, he continues to work the same way even today. We have a God who doesn't change. And even the writings will later convict those of Jerusalem, but they will also encourage those in captivity in Babylon. Because it seems as if Daniel, remember Daniel? He was a contemporary of Jeremiah. Well, while he was in Babylon, it seems that he has gotten a copy of this. And in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books, the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And so these things that were written were conviction for those who were under the judgment of God, but they were also for encouragement for those who God was keeping for the future generations. Once again, 
It's the same thing as the gospel, that the unbeliever would hear it, be convicted and change, that the believer would hear it, and the believer would be encouraged and strengthened in his Christian life, in his walk. Next, we see the red scroll, the scroll being red, verses 5 through 15. And Jeremiah commanded Barak, saying, I am uh, confined, I cannot go into the house of the Lord. So probably during one of his times of captivity by by the king, verse 6, You go, therefore, and read from the scroll which you have written at my instruction the words of the Lord in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of fasting, and you shall also read them in the hearing of all Judah who come from their cities. It may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord, and everyone will turn from his evil way, for great is the anger and the fury that the Lord has pronounced against this people." And Barak, the son of Neriah, did according to all Jeremiah the prophet had commanded him, reading from the book and the words of the Lord in the Lord's house at the temple. Now came the pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord to all the people in Jerusalem, to all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem. Um, This may have been a fast that was just proclaimed by the king. Doesn't seem like anything really according to the nature of the king, unless he had an ulterior motive. But the only other day was fasting was the Day of Atonement. And that would make perfect sense as far as what the Lord was commanding of the people to do, as far as them repenting and whatnot. Was it the Day of Atonement? It doesn't say. It seems to be something proclaimed by the king. Could have been, but nonetheless. Verse 10. Then Barak read from the book of the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chambers of Jemariah, the son of Saphan, the scribe in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the hearing of all the people. When Micaiah, the son of uh, Gemariah, the son of Saphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the book, he went down to the king's house into the scribe's chambers. There all the princes were sitting, Elishama, the scribe, Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, uh, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, Jemariah, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, of all the princes, and Macab uh, declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the book in the hearing of the people. Therefore, all the princes sent uh, Jehudi, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Shelemiah, the or Shelemiah, the son of Cushi, to Barak, saying, Take in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of the people, and come. So Barak, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hands and came to them, and they said to him, Sit down now and read it in our hearing. So Barak read it in their hearing. Their hearing resulted in some being convicted, some fearing God because of what was about to happen, and some just simply ignoring it. The same thing that happens when we go out when we share the Word of God. It amazes me every year. We, I had a meeting last Tuesday with, uh, at Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, with a group of pastors. And, you know, one of the things at this particular meeting, so how was your Easter? Well, our church increased, increased by 150%. You know, and so, you know, everybody that was here, our, our church did that. We had about a normal size first service, and second service was about a service and a half, maybe a little bit less, but pretty close to that. And... Word of God went out. We didn't have quite as many people the next weekend, the next Sunday. You know, some people, I'm sure, heard. We had people who responded to the gospel. Some people were convicted. Some people feared. But I think a lot of people, they ignored. See you next Easter, you know, kind of a thing. Unfortunately, that's always going to be the reaction when the scroll is read or when the word of God goes out. But the thing about it is, there's always going to be those people who are convicted, and there's always going to be those people who fear the Lord. And that's what we look for, as the people who do respond positively to the Word of God. To others, they're just justifying the judgment that is coming if they continue to refuse. Then we have a discussion of the scroll, verses 16 through 19. Now it happened when they had heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to another and said to Barak, We will surely tell the king of all these words. And they asked Barak, saying, Tell us now, how did you write all these words at his instruction? So Barak answered them, He uh, he proclaimed with his mouth all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Then the princes said to Barak, Go and hide you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. 
So they're just confirming that this has come from the prophet. So these men have received this. Some of these princes are holdovers from when Josiah was king. Some of them are good men. And they're realizing the king needs to hear that. Oh, that we would all have that mindset of those who are far from God, they need to hear it. And we would have a passion to tell them. And then lastly, what we're going to see as we close is the scroll attacked and actually burned, verses 20 through 32. Excuse me. And they went to the king into the court, but they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the scribe, and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sent Jehudi to bring the scroll and took it from Elishama, the uh, scribe's chamber, And Jehudi read it in the hearing of the king and in the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning on the hearth before him. And it happened when Jehudi had read three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire and was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments the king, nor any of his servants who heard all the words. Nevertheless, Elmathan, Delaiah, and Gemariah implored the king not to burn the scroll, but he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, Sarajiah, the son of Asriel, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdiel, to seize Baruch, and the scribe, and Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord hid them. Why couldn't they just name their kids Bob and John and Sam? It would have made it a lot easier for future pastors. Verse 27. Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Take yet another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll which Jehoiakim king of Judah had burnt. And you shall say to Jehoiakim king of Judah, Thus says the Lord, You have burnt the scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause man and beast to cease from here? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him, his family, and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I pronounced against them, but they did not heed. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burnt in the fire, and besides there were added to them many similar words. You can throw it in the fire, but it does not change the truth. You can take it out of schools, you can attempt to take it out of society, but it does not change the truth of the judgment that is coming, nor does it change the truth of the grace of God for those who repent. Again, you see the hard-heartedness and the conviction of this king who had his heart so set against the Lord. And you can see that of those throughout the course of history leading up to even some of our own relatives who have just such a hard heart. They attempt to burn the word of God, but the word of God is written on the souls of men and women. And the word of God, we're told, it will endure forever. I just want to close with Psalm 119, verses 17 through 24. It says, Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. You rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Father, I just pray, even as we see this psalmist and the passion that he has for the word of God, we see Jehoiakim and the contempt that he had against the word of God. Father, in your revelation of grace, how much more so should we immerse ourselves into your glorious gospel? And so, Father, I pray that we would see a people and 
uh, people who we are and how privileged we are, and that, Father, we would learn to embrace these things dear to our souls. And so, Father, we see the warnings that had come back then, and we see, Lord, how judgment came upon them, and history bears this out. Father, today we have been commanded to watch. We are to pay attention to the signs of the times. We are to pay attention to Israel and the things that are occurring there. We are to pay attention to the hearts of men and women even today. We are to pay attention, Father, to your spirit as it works through the church, knowing and understanding that the times are drawing nigh. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a people who are passionate. I pray, Father, that we would be a people who are motivated. Jeremiah, once again, it just seems like he just had everybody coming up against him and very little, if any, fruit from his ministry, at least no noticeable fruit from his perspective. But he was a man who was faithful and continued to push forward. Father, I pray that we would be a people who continue to push forward in your word. Lord, that you would be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? We are back to our regular schedule. Sunday morning, we are going to be in the book of Hebrews. Sunday night, we'll be in 2 Kings. We're looking at the life of Josiah, one of the few godly kings. I think there were only eight kings in the north, I'm sorry, southern kingdom who were spoken of as being of the Lord. Um, as I said before, Steve Potter's funeral, his services were going to be on Saturday. They are not going to be here and so if you want to attend, if you want to know where they're at, just email or text my wife or call here at the church, and we'll get you the information. Other than that, drive safely home. God bless you guys. So let's just end with one last song of commanding our souls to bless the Lord. Why? Because he's worthy. Yeah.